Hello, thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Chiara. And I'm Lucas. Welcome to Food of the Future, a podcast about alternative protein sources made by five honor students of Wageningen University and Research. Hey there, this time we are going to talk about another unique novel food, lemna, or also known as duckweed. First, we are going to introduce to you briefly into this topic, and later on, we will have a very interesting interview with the co-founder of Lemma Production and Processing Startup Plentiful Foods, Tony Martins. So, Lucas, what exactly is Lemna? Well, Lemna is an aquatic plant genus which grows floating on a water surface or just beneath it. These plants usually reproduce via vegetative reproduction, which means two plants are budding off from the adult plant, thus allowing a fast colonization of new waters. This feature of lamna is one of the key factors in turning this plant into a sustainable food source. And can you explain to our listeners why we decided to research lamna? Well, first we have noticed quite some interest in lamna from close scientific community. Therefore, we were curious what they are seeing in lamna that we weren't seeing at that moment. Upon doing some literature research about lamna, we have started getting a clearer picture of its benefits and stumbled upon a very interesting startup in California, from which you're going to hear later in the interview. It was also interesting to cover this topic since consumption of lemna is common in some parts of Southeast Asia, such as Thailand. And how nutritious is lemna? And what are some of the health benefits associated with lemna? Well, lemna contains around 20 to 35% of protein, 4 to 7% of fat, and 4 to 10% starch per dry weight, which depends on a specific species. In addition, 50 to 70% of fat is polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are linked to decreased risk of coronary heart disease. It is also interesting that amino acid distribution is close to World Health Organization recommendations and mineral content of lamna can be easily manipulated by a composition of water. Therefore, it shows that lamna is indeed a very nutritious and a healthy food source. But then, are there any risks in growing and eating lamna? Well, safety issues related to growing lamna will be contamination by pathogens such as E. coli or Clostridium botulinum and accumulation of heavy metals when duckweed is cultivated on water contaminated by them. Hence, it is important to monitor the presence of such contaminants during the production of lemna, since it has the ability to accumulate those contaminants. Hmm, lemna does really sound promising as a novel food. So what is the actual reason that we cannot find it in grocery stores yet? Well, currently lemna is not yet approved in the European Union for human consumption. Due to strict regulations in the EU, it takes quite a long time to get approved, around three to four years. However, in the United States, it is easier to get an approval for novel food source, which we're going to hear more about in the interview. So for lemna, legislation is the main barrier to seeing lemna in the market? Yes, I think so. In the EU, legislation is indeed standing in a way of seeing lemna food products in grocery stores. And apart from the legislation problem, consumer acceptance and their resistance to change can also be another barrier for novel food sources. What is the current reaction of people to lemna? Well, looking at one survey conducted on acceptance of lemna shows that acceptance for it is higher when it is used in a fitting dish, such as sandwich or salad, and information on nutritional and environmental benefits is provided. However, we think that processing lemna into specific functional fractions, such as high-protein fractions, to be used in certain products as an ingredient can increase consumer acceptance even more. For instance, adding lemna protein powder into cereal or a chocolate bar. And do you think that the consumers might change their opinion after they try the product? It is very difficult to predict consumer response, but many studies show a correlation that the more people are exposed to a certain product, the more positive the acceptance is. 
So yes, I think trying the product yourself can change the opinion on such a novel food. And lastly, we know that in general, plant-based food is more sustainable than animal-based food. How does Lemna compare to animal products and other plant farming? Lemna is known to be one of the most, if not the most protein-efficient crop in the world, based on requirements for land and water. It is claimed to be 100 times more efficient than soybean, 400 times more efficient than peas, and a whopping 50,000 times more efficient than beef. It achieves such effectiveness due to its nutritional properties, fast reproduction, which requires less land and low water consumption by the use of water recycling. Now, as we have given you a brief introduction to this topic, we can dive a little bit deeper and join the interview with Tony Martins. So today we have a very special guest with us, Tony Martins, the co-founder of Plantable Foods. Plantable Foods is a food technology startup based in San Diego, which aims at developing a functional and applicable plant-based protein from Lemna. So hi, Tony. It is very nice to have you here on our podcast, helping to shed light on novel food sources. Yeah, thank you for having me, uh, Lucas. So please, could you elaborate more on your company and what your company focuses on? Basically, what we're doing is we're building a novel vertically integrated agricultural supply chain that allows us to produce more functional food ingredients that can emulate the functional and nutritional characteristics of animal-based ingredients. And we're starting with a protein that we call Ruby protein that enables and emulates the functional characteristics of albumin, whey, and adipose tissue. And uh, we do that by growing an aquatic plant called Lemna, which is also known by its less appetizing name, duckweed, which is a tiny aquatic leaf that floats on the surface of water, doubles in mass every 48 hours and can be grown throughout the year. But perhaps more importantly, yields 10 times more protein per acre per year than soy while using only one tenth of the water that soy needs. Why did you decide to grow and process Lemna specifically? Is it because of the nutritional benefit or functionality of certain compounds? It's a good question. I think it started with us first identifying the problem in our food system, right? And the way we broke it down is in three segments. So the first one is, is that it's a public secret that animal agriculture is one of the largest contributors to climate change. Uh, on top of that, it's also one of the least efficient uh, food production machines. So we know that in order to be able to provide nutrition and health to the global population by 2050, that we need to reduce our reliance on animals uh, with respect to food production. And thus, finding ingredients and compounds that can adequately replace animal-based ingredients is highly desired and required. So when we started, we identified that we need to use better plant-based ingredients that do not force consumers to sacrifice on taste, texture, experience, or nutrition. And that's when we started to look for a plant-based protein that can emulate animal-based proteins. And so we came across this enzyme called Rubisco, uh, this naturally occurring enzyme, what which can emulate the functional characteristics of animal-based proteins from a foaming, gelation, emulsifying, and fat-binding perspective. 
Then two other issues that we are facing is when we identified our protein, we realized, okay, this is a, a protein ingredient with high potential. Now, what is the best source for this plant-based protein? And so we started to look for the most rubisco-efficient plant in the world, and we came across this novel aquatic plant called Lemna. And, and what makes Lemna very unique is that it's potentially one of the most sustainable, if not most sustainable plants in the world, while at the same time being the most nutrient-dense plant in the world. Overall, it has 30% more nutrients than kill, which some of the people here in the United States consider one of the holy grails in vegetables. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, it has around 40 to 45% protein, of which the majority is this uh, high-value rubisco protein. And so that's how we connected the dots. And how Lemna then solves two of the remaining issues, besides providing this high-quality protein, is that it also doesn't require arable land. And as we know, industrial agriculture is um, depleting our valuable soil from its nutrients. But due to the fact that Lemna floats on the surface of water, you're not relying on this same arable land in order to produce high quantities of the biomass. Well, because you grow it in a contained environment, and since it floats on the surface of water, the actual water loss is substantially less than uh, the water uh, needed to grow peas, weed, or soy, or rice. Last but not least, because you don't need the arable land, and because it's relatively geography agnostic, you don't run into the issue that you only have two or three regions in the world that can actually provide high-quality protein ingredients, as it is today, where you have the Southern American countries, Brazil and Argentina, and the Northern American country, the United States, uh, basically controlling the majority of the plant protein supply chain and therefore having potential geopolitical powers that allow them to basically enforce their will on other nations when it comes to food supply. And with Lemna, you can basically create a democratic, independent food supply chain around the world, providing countries, nations and regions uh, with an independent food supply chain and access and availability of high quality nutrients. Coming back to the production of Lemna, could you maybe briefly explain the production steps of Lemna processing for our listeners? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, you have a, have a green leaf. It goes into like a, a blender, like a Vitamix. You basically have a, uh, a green smoothie. You then want to remove, let's say, the fiber. So basically, you convert your green smoothie into a cold-pressed juice. Right, where the cold press use is still green but has your soluble protein inside of it. After that, you remove the chlorophyll, uh, you then remove the phenolics, and then you dry your uh, still soluble aqueous protein solution. Okay, so now let's turn towards sustainability. And from what you have mentioned previously, and from the research that we've done so far, Lambda does seem to be sustainable. Um, mainly because its cultivation does not require a lot of agricultural land and it also has a minimal carbon footprint. But do you think this is actually true in practice? And in your case, how does your production chain ensure that is, it is as sustainable as possible? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think if you look at uh, Lemna itself, right? So there have been studies done where people have looked into Lemna uh, and where the results have shown that it sequesters 10 times more carbon per unit of area, let's say an acre or an hectare, than a healthy forest. 
Um, and that's simply because of the fact that it's so present or let's so high in the rubisco protein. So rubisco's role in nature is to convert CO2 into sugar so that plants can grow. And because lemna is simply a leaf with almost no existing root structure, all of the energy goes into replicating itself and actually creating more rubisco that then can capture more CO2 that can then create more sugar so that more plants will grow. So it's relatively one of the most efficient plants when it comes to converting CO2 into sugar so that plants can grow. So naturally, the plant itself is highly carbon negative. Then the fact that it grows on water means that you can actually tap into land that is currently not suitable for agriculture, which is obviously the majority of the service of the world as it is today. And the fact that you grow it in a contained environment, whereas like obviously with, let's say, irrigation, the water tends to be lost in the soil, right? Or due to evaporation. And since we have a, a, a semi-controlled indoor environment where the water is contained in a water basin, we can basically keep control over the amount of water that we lose. Any water that we lose basically comes from the plant absorbing the water uh, because it's the leafy green and leafy greens notoriously are high in moisture content. But what we do is because we can have a circular, fully integrated system is that the water that we remove during the extraction process or the downstream process can be circulated back into our cultivation system because we're growing an aquatic plant which thrives on the water uh, uh, that uh, we derive from our downstream process. And so that's how we make sure that we can have a really low water footprint um, and a relatively low carbon footprint as well. So basically you recycle most of the water that you use in your production process. Exactly, yeah. What are the biggest achievements of your company so far? Um, yeah, it's a good question, right? So I think the problem always as a, as a startup founder is that you always look ahead and you forget to look uh, back. Yeah, you should <laughs> look back so, at some point. Yeah, yeah, you have to look back. I mean, like, it's been a wild ride, right? So both uh, Moritz and myself are from the Netherlands. Uh, we moved to the United States about four years ago to start Planable. You know, we went here with nothing more than uh, a, a, sm a small Tupperware box with a string of lemna. Uh, and we got, uh, we adopted a deserted algae facility in San Diego. And from that point in time, Moritz and I just went from growing lemna in Tupperware to now having approximately one hectare in cultivation service area. We have a downstream processing facility that can process up to one and a half metric tons of biomass per day. Um, and we're now in the midst of building our first commercial demo facility that's going to span approximately 75 hectares. So I think looking over the journey that we took, like just going somewhere to the other side of the world with our backpacks and a Tupperware box uh, with a lemna strain to now having a 30 plus team uh, with some of the smartest scientists in the world and, you know, having maximized our pilot facility in San Diego and now building our first commercial facility in Texas. I mean, it's been a crazy ride and a crazy adventure, but obviously, yeah, if you look back at it, it's been uh, quite amazing what we've been able to accomplish in such a short period of time. Yeah, it sounds truly like incredible story. Like almost you could use the story to build a movie out of it. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. The Tupperware and <laughs> that's truly crazy. Yeah.
Yeah, um, uh, we expect you must overcome many obstacles when developing products from a novel food source. Um, what are the main challenges you're currently facing? I think, you know, it's, um, it's, I think that obviously, like you have technological and scientific challenges, right? So uh, whether it's from productivity, process efficiency, and product quality, these are all like, you know, day-to-day -day challenges that we need to overcome. Uh, on top of that, you know, I think um, it's 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 a it's a complicated uh, complicated space, right? Because we've never really fundamentally reviewed our food supply chain. We've just continuously been building on top of what we decided to build, let's say, two thousand years ago, and we never reflected as to whether the crops that we decided to grow in that era, because that's how long ago you need to go in order to determine that we. That's when we started to grow the four major commodities, right? So corn, wheat, soy, and rice, um, simply because they were easy to harvest or a great rotational crop. And we've never looked back as to like, hey, does it still make sense that we're growing this crop? Are they the most nutritious plants that humans uh, should consume? Or should we start to reevaluate how we produce food? Uh, meaning assessing biomass, assessing agricultural infrastructure, and assessing food products sold to uh, consumers. So I think overall, like the challenges, like how can you rapidly develop skill and skill a reliable and sustainable uh, agricultural supply chain that has never been built before? And I think overall, that's a hurdle uh, on itself. On top of that, you get into the whole debate that we have today where, you know, you have this continuous conversation as to like whether we need to eat plant-based you know look at the clean label discussion oh it's a processed food and i think the whole debate about processed foods is like you know as we say in dutch and i don't know how it translates into english but it's like a container definition right it's like oh processed foods but like pasta is also processed right i mean crackers and bread are also all processed foods yes so yes it also depends how you process them it, it depends on how you process and so i think the the challenge that the plant-based foods community faces is that it's an unequal level playing field where you have an animal that's being fed certain compounds and then converts those compounds into meat and then the animal slaughtered and that's sold and then the ingredient label just reads meat right whereas if you feed those same compounds to a machine and those machines convert those compounds into a plant-based product then suddenly you have to list every material that you fed to the machine right and then suddenly consumers are like oh my god this is highly processed whereas like you know what does that actually mean and i think from a social uh perspective that is the biggest challenge the whole industry needs to overcome like how do you educate consumers and is it perhaps more of a generational shift that we have to wait for uh, in order to for it to be fully adopted um and how as an industry can we actually work together right how can we as let's say the front runners like a beyond an impossible light life work with let's say the smaller incumbent players and strengthen each other instead of like competing against each other so coming back to the consumer acceptance we mostly know that consumers in food industry are very conservative therefore innovative food companies are usually having a hard time getting into the market 
So how do people perceive Lemla at this point? And is their product market price competitive enough? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, I think price competitive, absolutely. Um, there, I think it's the consumers are really hard, right? Um, because uh, to crack uh, them, because uh, they always say something, but actually they do something else. I think there's 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 different elements there, right? So it's like plant based meats, right? Um, you know. I think the burgers, personally, the burgers are great, right? So for me, like, I think uh, it's it's whatever you're used to. I think there's always this sentiment that's being created, us versus them, you know, uh, whatever. I think, like, if you look at the four key factors, it's price, quality, nutrition. But I think what a lot of people overlook is also the experience element. And I think a good example of that is plant-based eggs, right? If you look at... The majority of eggs being sold to consumers, I think like 95, 96% is in a shell in a, in a in a cardboard box, right? Like only 3% are like liquid eggs. So that means that consumers are used to, you know, a, a, an egg or a she- egg shell. And yeah. So they're not used to pouring liquid eggs into a pan. So that whole experience is 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 hard to is hard to replace with plant-based because it's hard to put a plant-based fluid into an eggshell, right? Um, and I think so overall, time will tell. Like, there will currently be a pri- price discrepancy, but that also comes down to the fact that there's a lot of subsidies in place right now that keep animal agriculture as affordable as it is today. And uh, that creates an unequal level playing field. So we might need to reevaluate how this these financial systems are generating this uh, this discrepancy in pricing ability. Uh, and similarly, there was also an interesting graph recently that I saw, where retailers are also trying to capture the hype and uh, the buyer personas of plant-based food products, right? Because it tends to appeal more to let's say the higher income individuals yeah, yeah. within society, which therefore results in grocery store, uh, stores or retailers to keep the prices relatively high compared to, let's say, animal-based products, because they know that these uh, buyers will not be affected by price as much. So it's a whole supply chain thing, plus, let's say, financial incentive or governmental influence uh, uh, thing that, we need to jointly solve over the next decade. And, you know, we need to also be cognizant of the fact that we're not talking about mobile apps. We're not talking about online marketplaces. We're talking about infrastructure, heavy capex, and economies of skill that will take time to develop before we can actually create a a one-for-one replacement with uh, a supply chain that has been built out over thousands of years right and so it's going to take time for us to within a relatively much shorter time period to get to a place where we can create products that are as good as nutritious and as affordable as their animal-based counterparts Um, and so it's important to keep that trajectory in mind and keep funding these initiatives so that there will be plenty of resources available to eventually reach that goal because without a doubt we need to get there yeah, definitely. I think this 
change towards plant-based diet will require quite some efforts. Yeah. Yeah. So like, like our approach, our approach is also slightly different from that perspective. So where we're more focusing on, okay, how can you place functional components in existing food formulations, right? Where animal-based proteins play a functional role. How can we basically replace those functional components without forcing consumers to sacrifice on taste or texture, but also not on experience, right? So I think there are some examples already happening across the world where large food service chains are saying like, hey, our standard is now going to be plant-based milk instead of animal milk. So if you want to get animal milk, you need to specifically ask for it. Uh, otherwise, we'll just serve you plant-based milk with your coffee, right? And I think getting to a stage where a consumer doesn't feel that they have to sacrifice on anything is uh, uh, the shortest route to gain consumer adoption. And I think the best way to get there is by being a component of an overall formulation. So whether that's an egg and baking or whether it's milk in a coffee. So we know that in general, food regulations are strict and it is not easy for novel foods to be authorized as safe for human consumption. What is the current progress in this matter for Lumna, both in the United States and the European Union? Yes, yeah, one of the reasons why we moved to the United States, right? So in the United States, the FDA is a little bit more flexible when it comes to food approval, which obviously has its ups and its downsides, I would say. And Europe is just uh, very conservative, right? So there are multiple parties that are going through this process right now, whether uh, it's for lemna as a material or for lemna derivative. And so this is with the, with the EFSA. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, they have, uh, it's funny because they have like a three to four year period during which they approve. But yesterday we had a visit from a Dutch journalist and uh, she actually reached out to them about getting some additional information for, uh, about the EFSA approval process. And apparently their media team is really fast, but I guess their regulatory approvers are just taking a lot longer time uh, to get back to food companies. Uh, and it makes you wonder whether the system that's in place would actually also reapprove the foods that we're consuming today, but they obviously made a decision that, you know, there is a certain cutoff date. I think it's 1997. And if people were consuming the respective food product prior to that date, that they will not reevaluate uh, the respective commodity. But it might be worthwhile. I don't know if anyone actually has done that to see whether the food products that we eat on a daily basis today would pass uh, EFSA's uh, approval process. That would be definitely something interesting to see. And now for the last question that we ask all of our guests in this podcast, what do you think food of the future will be like? And could it be Lemna? I think um, I'm a big believer in personalized nutrition. Uh, I think we'll actually move more and more towards health from a food decision maker. I think overall we'll be able to genetically engineer, tailor, or optimize the overall flavor and texture profile of foods, whether that's through functional compounds that can be derived from novel plants like lemna or through fermentation. But I think most importantly, we'll move towards a society where food is going to be a key element in the overall health of an individual, as it should be. Uh, and people are going to create diets and um, food systems 
that are tailored uh, for personalized nutrition. So you imagine lemna playing a specific function as an ingredient in foods. Yeah, and also I, I, the way yeah a specific uh, function in healthness of people. Yeah, I, I foresee lemna as a key food source uh, in the future to provide uh, nutrition and uh, texturization uh, of food products. Um, uh, yeah, so as a as a as a source where the overall industry will then take these more sustainable, scalable sources and convert them into personalized nutrition. So Lemna is sustainable and nutritious food source to provide us food in the future. Yes, exactly. So thank you very much for your time and the insights on such a novel food source. And we can't wait to see food products with Lemna on the market. Yeah, awesome, man. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure. So thanks for uh, having me. As we have learned from Tony Martins, Lamna reproduces incredibly fast, doubling its mass roughly every day. This fast reproduction rate is very beneficial to use Lamna as food. Well, to be more precise, Lamna's protein called Rubisco is used as functional ingredient, which, as mentioned by Tony, can mimic various animal proteins, such as those present in egg whites or meat. If you take a look at the nutrition of lamna, it is rich in protein of diverse amino acid composition and polyunsaturated fats, which makes it a competitive food in terms of healthness. It is not only healthy, but sustainable, as was explained during the interview. It requires less land than other crops and especially livestock. It has also relatively low greenhouse gas emissions and water usage due to recycling. However, lamna is still under process of approval for human consumption in European Union, and as Tony has stated, it is a challenge to rapidly develop skills in this new area and scale an agricultural supply chain that has never been built before. In addition, it is hard to predict the reaction of consumers to such a novel food source. What I really liked about the story of plantable foods is that both founders Tony and Maritz have come to the United States with just a strain of lamna in a Tupperware box and their vision. Now they have grown into a very successful startup. And in my opinion, it just portrays a perfect example that you can accomplish a lot, even if you start small, but you work hard towards it. Thank you for listening to the Food of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support novel and creative food sources, please share it with others. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.